Excuse me. There we go. Okay, let's go. Okay. Yeah. Remember, buy low, sell high, and oil the wheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah, just shut up. Sh- shut up, and I'll do it. <laughs> yes. Fucking control freak you are. But I was bad. Maybe this will be the opening of the episode now. Anyway, welcome to episode 16 of the Coriolis Effect. Buy low, sell high, and grease the wheels of the third horizon. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew. And boy, have we got a packed programme for you this episode. (laughs) And it's packed because, Dave, you did your homework. And boy, did you do your homework. (laughs) Me? I did mine on the bus before we went in to record the last episode. But uh, (laughs) you have been teacher's pet. You have been the class what? You You have discovered so much about trade that this entire episode pretty much is dedicated to trade in the Third Horizon. But we have got a little bit of um, World of Gaming stuff to talk about before we do that. And then when we get on to trade, we've got a recorded bit from you. We've got, I think, what's going to turn out to be quite a long discussion about the history of trade in the Horizon that, uh, that you've worked out. And then we've got another little bit of recorded discussion on the threats to trade. And I think that's all we'll be able to fit into this episode. Yeah, I think we've got a lot to talk about, even though, like you say, under our World of Gaming session, that's going to major mostly on the Forbidden Lands, which has just come out in alpha form. And you've run a game, I've read the rules, so I'm looking forward to uh, talking about that. But in fact, I've got we've got two things to talk about in World of Gaming. You're quite right, Forbidden Land. I've just uh, run a scenario last night with my... Uh, midweek group and they they really enjoyed it and they want to do the hex call but i'll um i'll save that for a moment before that though i thought we ought to have a little bit of a discussion prompted by listener chris on google plus who's really enjoyed our tale of the lonesome ogre episodes i just want to say hi chris hi chris hi chris (laughs) (laughs) and and he wanted to hear having played it what our opinion of the system and setting were as he said is it free beer or is it hard stairs at the Lonesome Ogre? <laughs> well, are we going to talk about that now or save that for next time? No, we'll, we'll talk about it now, I think, a little bit. Talk about it now? Yeah, let's do that. Shall we? Let's, right, I think, then. I mean, I, I think in short, we're, we're, we're playing it some more, aren't we? So we're enjoying it that much. I think I'm really enjoying the setting. I'm enjoying the rules cool. a little bit less. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I... I agree with you. I think there's so two things for me. One, I've got to the point with the D20 system having been, in my opinion, spoiled a bit by some really good games that are dice pool games. Coriolis obviously being an obvious one. Um, L5R being another. Rolling one die doesn't. It does do it for me, but it's got it's got weaknesses to it. I think. And then as a referee, as a GM playing the game, I. I miss rolling dice. Even as a GM, I'm not just a storyteller. I want to participate in the game a little bit. And I'm finding it hard's the wrong word, because I've been loving playing these games and really enjoyed them. But I do miss rolling the dice a little bit. Yeah, I think I think there are some GMs who who probably really love player-facing games because actually, you know, rolling the dice, and I felt this very much when I was running the Firefly role-playing game, which is Cortex Plus. Yeah. That actually, 
I, you know, you, you had to, every time the players rolled the dice, the GM had to roll the dice as well and create dice balls and all that sort of stuff. And actually that, for me, was too much dice rolling. If you talked to me in the middle of that session, I would have been really, really keen for a player-facing one where only the players roll the dice. But yeah. actually, I, I dig where you're coming from, and it, it's nice to roll the dice occasionally as GM. I think it's interesting the how flexible the Zero engine is in that you know, we noticed when we played Tales from the Loop that actually that's pretty player-facing. You don't get to roll the dice very often or at all as GM in that game. Yeah. I'll talk a bit about dice rolling as GM in, in Forbidden Lands, having just done that. But let me just, you know, presage the argument by saying, yeah, you roll the dice a lot in Forbidden Lands as GM. <laughs> so if you you know, if you're missing dice rolling, become a Forbidden Lands GM and you're gonna you're gonna get to roll the dice. Not as much as in Cortex Plus, but that's too much. I think probably enough to please you. I think you're right. I mean, I don't want to be rolling the dice all the time. I want to be rolling the dice at you know good moments and once in a while you know moments that you know build some tension and there's a really good example of it and i we're we're not going to have time for me to talk about spectral corsair today but we did run a game last night and it was a bit of a bottle scenario so only three of my six players could make it and we worked it out the the scenario was largely combat based they were under pressure for the whole whole evening and uh, going back to our conversation in the last episode or, or the episode before about deciding when to use crits and when to use damage to break people, I rolled one dice to try and crit them yesterday. Mm-hmm. And there was a real powerful, palpable tension in the air when I did it. Because one, I didn't want to kill any of them off, really, when the other players weren't there to help them, which is kind of a bit would have been a bit harsh. And and two, I came up with a really good way of dealing with them when they got broken at one point. But we'll talk about that another time. But in terms of rolling the dice, the point I'm making is I was rolling the dice openly on the table, as a good GM should do for rolling critical hits. Don't you agree, Matthew? I do. I do. I did that, <laughs> I, I did that last night as well. And I'll tell you about that because we, we will talk about Forbidden Lands. And there was a really, really strong tension in the air that I was part of rather than just being an observer of. And I think that that's a real difference for me. Yeah. But for me, the fundamental problem, and actually I think this might go way back for me, the fundamental problem is the D20. I'm so not a fan of the D20. And I don't think I realised maybe why I wasn't a fan back when we were playing Dungeons & Dragons initially, you know, in, in, in the early 80s. But, you know, as a group, we moved on to Traveller very quickly. And of course, with Traveller, with 2D6, you're getting a bell curve of probability there. Yeah. D20, you don't get that bell curve. It's a straight line <laughs> and it's a really arbitrary number. You know, one of 20 sides turns up, 5% chance of getting any number. And um, it's easy to work out what chance you've got. If you know, you know, if you know what you're aiming to roll over or under, then over for D&D, under, un- under for uh, Simba Room. But... Just, uh, I just find it so frustrating that you have to accept that dice anyway. It tumbles with a pool of dice. I feel happier. Yeah, I mean, having focused on the the D twenty part of it, I think that's the only thing I I really don't like about Simba Room. As I said, I I prefer to roll some dice, but it's not the end of the world for me. And the setting is fabulous. the The ideas behind it is really good. And as a game, it's got a really nice look and feel. It's it, it's very easy to make it atmospheric. I think. So the game itself, loving it. Dice dynamic, not so much. Cool. 
Well, um, our listeners seem to be enjoying listening to it, so I guess, Chris, uh, you and others will be pleased to hear we've got another adventure. It's one that we recorded when we were in Norfolk, and we used two mics for that one, which worked better than just recording my episode of Coriolis on one mic, so it is at least audible. Uh, <laughs> however, we, we found an interesting thing with using two blue snowballs <laughs> that... Um, they record at variable speeds, so it's taking me a bit of time to sync the two tracks together, minute by minute, pretty much, and it's a five and a half hour long track. So, um, all it means is that my laptop is more supercharged and yeah, you know, a bit quicker than yours. Now, so, honestly, uh... it, it could be that because generally my laptop is slower. Sometimes my laptop is recording faster than yours within those five that's and weird. a half hours, but most of the time it's recording slower. So that's that's what I get for using university laptop. We will have some episodes of Tale of the Lonesome Changeling, which is the next scenario that, well, hopefully it won't be too long. In the next few weeks, we'll get the get, get the first ones of those out. Yeah. I think probably next on our schedule is um, the recording of the Tales of the Loop game that you ran uh, yeah. a, a few weeks ago. So that's pretty much ready to go. So that's what you'll hear the first episode of after you've heard this episode of the Coriolis Effect. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so let's move on. I want to hear all about your experiences running the Alpha of Forbidden Lands yesterday, Matt. Well, you can. And just to say that um, everybody else might be able to as well, because I, at the last minute, decided to record that. It's it's not with you and Tony. It's with my gamers, Tom, Tom and Jace. But we, we ran a game last night, and it went really well, I think. It was a bit cramped. We... We ran it because I'm in the middle, or rather coming to the climactic final episode of an Unknown Armies campaign with them, and two players were going to be away last night, and we thought it was unfair that they should miss out on the climactic on the climax. session. Yeah. Yeah. So we had this just this one shot to play, and because I wanted to record it, of course I then spent half an hour lugging all the recording equipment in and setting that up, so we had two and a half hours to play. I knew it was going to be tight, and so I ran the scenario in the back of the alpha test. Okay. I haven't read that. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, we might run it again. <laughs> uh, I might be better at running it now, now I've run it once. Um, Weatherstone, that's called. Now, it's, these guys had played Coriolis once. I'd done one session of Coriolis with them, but we, we never went on to play a bunch of Coriolis. Um, so they'd got a little bit of experience of Coriolis, but of course, the first thing you really notice is... The dice rolling is a tad more complex. It's like uh, you'll be familiar with from Mutant Year Zero. Mutant, yeah. Um, but they picked that up really quickly. And I've got to say, you know, there were times when they were rolling a whole bunch of dice. And and seriously, a whole bunch of dice. You know, for first level characters, one guy was rolling, I think, well over 12 dice for, for some of his actions. Because uh, he kind of been maxed himself. And Wow. And 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 sometimes he didn't get any successes. And did he mind? <laughs> no, he didn't. Uh, and you know there were other times. Uh, Jace was rolling a little bit like Tony and I were in Tales in the Loop, where he'd roll three dice and get two successes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, frankly, I like that. Give me that sort of dice ball. I can. I, I, I'm very much enjoying the dice mechanic. Yeah, and the listeners are very much going to hear my frustration at your. I mean, blimey! I mean, those dice looked 
looked blooming weighted to me. I mean, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> you and made just, me try uh, two different dice sets, and they're both Freeligan dice sets. <laughs> <laughs> they were your your um your 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 custom set for Tales from the Loop, and the set that we got out of the Coriolis box, and they all came up really well for us for that set. <laughs> no. The next session we play, they'll probably I won't get any sixes at all. So you know what goes around comes around. But um, very, very true. These guys enjoyed the dice rolling. Uh, they really enjoyed the the misery and getting the misery off the dice. Now, interestingly, because we only had two and a half hours, I started right at the beginning of the scenario. I'd have liked to have done a bit of hex calling because I'd sold that to them, and they really want to do that. So I think at some point when the game comes out properly and we've got the proper map and the stickers we will do a campaign at the shop because they're, they're fascinated by that. And they quite, and they really like the procedural nature of the, the resources. And, and this was an interesting thing again, because they kind of knew they weren't going to roll, run out of resources. They were getting quite a lot of misery on agility, which you cure just by taking a drink. And so uh, they were earning mm. quite a lot of willpower and then, getting it back effectively, getting getting the misery back by taking a swig out of their water bottle. And because this wasn't a long campaign, they were happy to roll their resource dice and none of them ran out of water within the length of the session. So that became a way of powering up to do magic and stuff. But it was fine. I mean, it, it went really well. I think in a hex crawling campaign, they'd get a bit more worried about their water supplies because they were loving the idea that, you know, that you had to do that. They did some trading our ranger ran out of arrows and 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 did some trading with a non non player character and and bought some you know some steps in his in his roll in his dice up from d6 to d10 from yeah. from that other guy so they were really into that resource management and i and i think the way we all hated doing resource management back when we were playing original D&D the the fact that this was a fun game in itself i think bodes well for the finished version mm. it's interesting about about the um use of willpower and the players very quickly learning a way of kind of farming it i think you could you can you could find that might become an issue in a long campaign because then you know characters then know how to go about just getting themselves ready for stuff which You'd want it to be probably a little bit more dynamic and sort of uh, spontaneous than that. But in um, looking back to Mutant Year Zero, which obviously does the same thing, but with mutant points, I don't remember it feeling like that in that the players were farming points in order to get their mutant points up. But when they were spending them, particularly in one in Morgan's case, there was one occasion he used his his, his mutation and he used, I think, nine mutant points, which made him uber powerful but basically meant he was dead if he failed the role because the mutations yeah. would come come back on himself so i guess is there something i had a quick read of the alpha rules and i i guess there is something along those lines similarly in forbidden lands well i'm not that familiar with how the mutant role works because of course you do get kind of degraded from your skill role that's one of the things that i'm a little bit confused by and in fact i need to uh, Again, this was this is a comment overall. I thought going to the table, I knew the rules better than I actually did. But in the mm. end, I was spending quite a lot. Well, I didn't want to spend a lot of time looking stuff up. So I hand waved a bunch of stuff. But one of the examples is when you get an extra dice from a talent, what sort of dice is it? Is it a base dice? 
that gives you a you know gives you a chance of getting misery, or is it a skill dice which doesn't? I don't know what it is in in Mutant Year Zero. You got any thoughts on that? It's a good question. I'm trying to remember. So you having mentioned this a little early, just before we started recording, I'm having a look. I can't reach my Mutant Year Zero book, but I'm looking at Genlab Alpha, which is basically the same. Yeah. In terms of mo- modifying modifying dice rolls when For external difficulty. factors yeah, that was will a, either help rule, you like... or will either hamper you, in Genlab, in Genlab Alpha, you are making those adjustments by giving or taking away skill dice. Skill dice, right. Skill dice rather than the others. Yeah, I couldn't... That was another rule I couldn't remember. Yeah. Uh, so I think I fluffed it in some way. But it looks like a pretty deadly... So I don't think farming is going to be a problem in a long campaign because actually part of part of this was they didn't, you know, they weren't having to conserve their water supplies. Yeah. Whereas, actually, I think if they'd travelled across, you know, a few hexes to get to Weatherstone before they started the adventure, they'd have learnt about conserving water. So mm. they were farming it in this case. Well, they were, and they weren't even. I, I'm describing what they did as farming willpower, but actually, I don't think. I think it all came about naturally in play. One of my guys was playing a bit of a drunkard, so his wasn't water. His was gin or something like that, uh, mm-hmm. and that was fine. In fact, I gave him an extra supply of gin because I was enjoying his role play so much. So I think what I'm kind of saying is I'm not worried about the willpower powering magic and people having to fail first before they've got the the power to do magic. I think that's yeah. going to be fine. It works very well in Mutant Year Zero by having to push yourself to get the power to use your mutations. And it's exactly the same dynamic, I think, in, in Forbidden Land. So I don't see that being uh, I don't see that being a problem at all. Yeah. I have got a uh, I, the problem I'm foreseeing is actually there's been a bit of discussion about this on Freer Legan's forum, I've noticed, about people saying, well, the distribution of dice when you get custom dice seems to be wrong. You don't get all that many D6. And yes, Freer Legan say, but you can buy more than one dice set, but then you end up with a whole bunch of spare D12s. And I kind of okay. agree with that from a GM's point of view. I think you probably get just enough for a player, but uh, when you're a GM and you've got you know, sometimes 12 strength dice to roll for a monster attack or 10. And you're thinking, oh, you know, I haven't got enough dice of the right colour. So I think as a GM, I'll be building my dice pools out of non-custom dice. I think I've got okay. enough of different colours from, you know, I've got two sets that I use Coriolis, so I, I can do that. I was about to say, in my experience, having run Mutant Year Zero, my immediate instinct was, well, that, no, that was never a problem for me. And I did have some creatures in there that were quite tough. But then I thought a bit more and think I did actually buy two sets of the dice, I think. So, uh, you know, maybe you've got a point as a GM. Yeah. But you can still use normal D6s. You don't you don't have to buy the, the custom dice, you know. You no, just no. Get different I kind of want to, D6s. <laughs> I know, don't you always? I kind yeah. of want to as well. But um, there's no need to. Uh, no need to. So yeah, but uh, well, and it, and we've recorded this game actually. So I don't want to say too much about what happened in the story. I was a bit soft on them. I'll give you an example. Well, uh, the dice were a bit soft on them, and then I was. So in their fight with the biggest monster, which they met early on, uh, I think I should probably have given them more choices about where to go. But I was doing it because we were short of time in quite a sequential way, moving them from scene to scene. Yeah. Um, so I didn't give them a chance to avoid this monster. They walked slap back into it. They had to have a fight. And 
none of them were equipped with any armor. And boy, do you want armor when you're playing freely again? Let me, let me, or when you're playing <laughs> Food and Lands. Uh, uh, that's what I've learned. Anyway, the halfling got slapped by um, the scorpion fellow's tail and was broken. And of course, this is where we come to rolling a critical hit. Now, I didn't roll, actually, this time. I thought, you know, I've learnt my lesson. And I said, OK, roll, roll 2d6. Roll 1d6 first to raise the tension. And he rolled a 1. So I said, oh, I, I think you're going to be OK. And then roll another d6. And he rolled another 1. So he'd got slapped by this gigantic uh, scorpion creature, but had actually only got a slightly bleeding forehead. Double 1 yeah. on the on the d66 table. After I built up the fact that he could be dying. So disappointed. <laughs> um, you're, just, you're, just, you're just evil, Matt. That's your trouble. <laughs> he, he was broken, though. And interestingly, uh, shortly after that, the spellbinder got broken and the ranger was thinking about, well, I'm just going to run away and leave these guys here to be eaten. Uh, and so then I was a very generous GM and rather ha- than having this second party that were also hunting for the treasure being proper antagonists, I had them then come and save the party and treat the guys so that we could run the last scenario, the last hour of the scenario. And again, actually, we could have gone on longer there, but we only had an hour, so I was a bit soft on them making their actions to get the final end point, generally, and even softer when we got into the last 10 minutes. But it's a, it's still a fun scenario to listen to, but as I say, about two and a half hours long, and I think we could put it out in a couple of episodes when we've done Tales from the Loop. Yeah, sounds great. Excellent. Right, that's enough in the world of gaming, because boy, you have done a PhD thesis in the space of three weeks. <laughs> it's a pity that it's a PhD thesis that's entirely made up, but... Um... I know. Uh, well, I've done a lot. I don't know how good it is. I should leave that to everybody else to uh, to decide. But hopefully it'll provoke some food for thought. Okay, so you've done a couple of recorded pieces. So let's listen to the first of those before we get into proper discussion. I guess it was inevitable that Matt's simple question would end up unearthing a wealth of issues and topics. I'm not sure that any examination of these would do them justice, or at least the justice I would like. But for now, I'm going to focus on how to bring trade into your Coriolis campaign. We all make loads of assumptions when we play traders, or smugglers perhaps, with visions of Han Solo maybe, Although, whoever actually saw him trade anything? Or maybe Mal Reynolds, or Monty, or some Ferengi business mogul. But usually, it doesn't really extend to exactly what we like to trade, and what the trade network actually looks like. We just go get submissions, buy some stuff, usually illegal, high-value, dangerous stuff, and fly off to have an adventure that has nothing to do with trading at all. And that's fair enough. Running game after game of negotiating the price of Algolan Ale and dealing with yet another corrupt customs official would quickly hit the snooze button. But looking at the rich history and context of the Third Horizon, I've found lots of interesting and exciting opportunities not only to hook players into some fascinating scenario ideas, but drag a load of context, colour and life from the pages of the books and into your scenarios. So let's start by taking a quick look at the free traders as crew. I love the idea of a free trader crewing Coriolis, and my players in the Spectral Corsair campaign are just that. They took the group talent, Everything is for Sale, ahead of A Nose for Burr and The Quickest Route, 
See page 70 of the core book for what that actually means. They have a smuggler's stash on board the Corsair, and are much more a smuggling outfit than a big trade ship. We went into some detail about their character backgrounds, but didn't really explore how and why they were traders, and what they were actually traders of. So having failed to think much about trade before I started that campaign, I was certainly guilty of what I mentioned right at the start, that often trader crews just go and get some missions, buy some stuff, and fly off to have an adventure that's got nothing to do with trading at all. There is real gaming value in delving into the trader background of the player characters and the crew as a whole. Maybe a PC trader crew should have more to them at the outset than just a ship, a title, we're traders, and a so-called trading mission or two. Maybe to help flesh out this backstory, they should be expert or specialist traders in something, such as, or maybe they should be able to fly the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, or maybe they're renowned for a specific trade route for some reason. Maybe they are the only traders who can get in and out of the Tawan system with a full cargo. Perhaps they're antiques experts, but dealing in forgeries as the only way to make ends meet. Gunrunners for hire? Maybe florists seeking new species and varieties. Or spice and drug traders. But whatever the background is, it would give them the genuine basis for a trading campaign. A proper and colourful backstory and context, if you will, even if they then run off and do stuff that's not so connected to trading. For me, I feel that the Corsair campaign missed out on this kind of context, and would have been enhanced by it as the anchor around which the campaign would revolve. So what are they going to trade? Well, when it comes down to it, and they need some money, they are going to trade or smuggle just about anything. Page 48 of the Atlas Compendium gives a D66 table of free trader cargo options, from things like ore and noble gases and ice, to exos, drones and body armour. It's an excellent summary of a wide range of trade goods that any group of free traders might be interested in, or the GM can let her imagination go haywire. But in my campaign, I have on at least two occasions offered my players a range of missions to choose from. We roleplay them looking for work on the basis of the missions I've rolled up. Pages 48 and 49 of the Atlas Compendium have the free trader mission generator tables, and I use these to generate six to eight missions for the players to explore and consider. But we mustn't forget that trading is a long burn business. When I started thinking about trade, I was drawn to the idea of the colonial world, with trading clippers, the fastest ships of the era, sailing the seas, delivering tea, sugar, and more nefariously, slaves and weapons. But they still took weeks or months to get anywhere, and I got to thinking about travel times in the horizon. What would be the quickest travel time you could go from one system to another? Well, I thought about it like this. If you're going to transit one system, to get from one portal, your arrival portal, to the departure portal, which are half an AU from the star and on opposite sides of the star from one another, that's going to take you maybe a day, or a bit less than a day, because that's an AU distance. Let's say one day. If you need to stop and service, you need to travel to the nearest space. There may be a portal station, but if there isn't, you're likely to be one or two AU away from a planet with a relevant station. If you get to service the ship as well for one day, and then come back, that's going to be three days. Then you need to prepare for the jump and make that jump, so let's say that's, that's a day. So the best speed possible, if you didn't bother with servicing your ship, would be two days to transit a system. If you are going to have a service, you're looking at five days. 
If we say a sensible captain is going to want to service his ship every other jump, then that's seven days to cover two systems. So to go from Mira to Dabaran on that basis will take you 24 days, or thereabouts, two and a half weeks at best speed. If you were going to go from Mira to Kua via the quadrant of the pillar, let's say Zalas have gone and chosen to close their portals again, that too will take you three and a half weeks. If you're going to go around the Dabaran Circle, that will take you five and a half weeks. And Menka to Inu, one end of the horizon to the other, will take you six and a half weeks. But all this assumes that money is no object. You've got to pay to get through those portals, remember, and pay to get your ship serviced. Also assumes that there's no trouble on the way, and that the jumps all go smoothly. And remember that these are the best speeds. So multiply the time by 1.5, 2, or even 3 for bigger ships or slower ships, or if you need to travel deeper into a system and further away from the portals to find a place to service your ship or a nice planet to have some R&R. &R. But whatever happens, trade, as well as communications and knowledge, will take time to move across the horizon. Having thought about this, I've come up with a number of scenario hooks and ideas based around trade, loosely, and I give them out here for you to have a think about and use as you see fit. First and foremost, a simple but extended journey for a crew following either an overarching mission, like the search for Resim Alder in my Spectral Corsair campaign, or simply a trading expedition, where they trade their way from system to system, having adventures along the way. As I mentioned before, the mission generators can be found in the Atlas Compendium if you want to roll some dice to see what's going to happen. Or maybe they are experts in trading a specific type of animal, or semi-intelligence, or portal artefacts, and they get a huge order from an unknown buyer. It's a tough order to fulfil, but the payoff is huge. Or they learn that a competitor has been given this particular order, and if they let their competitor do it, their position and reputation as traders will be dust. They have to complete the order and sell it to the buyer before their competitor does. The PC crew could be pirates, or holders of what's called the Anticam Altarkis Letter of Mark. This could be down to circumstances, or they could be working with or for the Syndicate or the Consortium. There's a large range of political scenarios to be played out around the Council, seeking to reinforce or repeal or change the Navigation Accords. Maybe there are signs from the icons that this situation is displeasing them. The doppelganger caravans are a direct and visible threat to the Consortium's authority. Perhaps someone is needed to disrupt the next caravan, or subvert the captain of the convoy. Or maybe a plot against the next caravan is brewing, and someone needs you to root out the plot and help the caravan go about its business. Maybe some extreme first-come faction hates the dominance of these Zenithian heretics, and undertakes to destroy every portal and return the Third Horizon to the religious certainties of the past. Or possibly... They see Kua and the Coriolis Station as the fount of all that is wrong with the Third Horizon, and the capture or destruction of the Kua system is the way to right all these wrongs. Perhaps a bulk hauler or a doppelganger caravan didn't arrive at its destination as expected. Or maybe it was found but empty and haunted. What happened to it? Maybe someone wants the PCs to go and find out. Does some other faction take up the Zelosian example and shut down access to their portals? Why would they do this? What is behind the move? Can someone infiltrate the system and investigate? A friend has been ruined by some small-time, local, but influential trade official. The PCs are asked to take revenge 
and uncover the conspiracy plaguing the system. The consortium are trying to expand into the quadrant of the pillar. Maybe the pirates in Altai are freedom fighters, resisting the corporate advance of the consortium's commercial imperialism. Maybe the PCs support the pirates, or perhaps are sent to help clear them out and smooth the way for the consortium's trade to move in. In the Godar system, the PCs have connections who have uncovered a rich seam of some natural mineral resource. But in move the consortium's agents, backed by some legion thugs, to make the locals an offer they cannot refuse and try to impose the navigation accord. Maybe someone has the strength to resist this. A collector of antiquities, a trading partner of the PC crew, offers the players a special commission to go and find something unique, but they are not the only ones after it. And finally, the PC's patron has heard tales of new raw material deposits being opened up in Sivas, or Ordana, or Eriku, or Algabar, or Nagar, and sends his trading contacts, the PCs, to go and open up negotiations to secure the trade. But the Consortium, the Free League, and the Zenithian Trade Alliance all want a piece of it too. So, Dave, those sound like really good ideas for running a trading campaign, which gets away from the kind of murder space trading hobos that we used to play in um, in Traveller. But, you know, I, I like to think I know my way around the Coriolis background now. And there are three things here I have never heard of. Doppelganger caravans? What are those? And, um... Anticam Altarkis and the Navigation Accord? I, I, where, where have those come from? What page are they on? Well, that's because, one, you haven't delved deeply enough into the history of the Third Horizon, like I have. And two, you haven't heard these things because uh, I've made them up. Right. So they, they form part of my history, which I think were there were quite interesting ideas that I, I thought I could chuck them in along with the stuff that's in the book and the stuff that's in the canon. Add a bit of extra colour. I mean, shall I tell you a little bit more about some of this background then? Okay, right. So here we're, we're turning into um, uh, those of us who are English may listen to Radio 4 and In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. I feel this is going to kind of go that way. So this week, <laughs> uh, I, I have the renowned Professor David Seamark uh, here from the... <laughs> Uh, university, or from the foundation, I guess, who is an expert in the history of trade in the Third Horizon. <laughs> so, so please, David, tell me, what was the impact of the Portal Wars? I feel like I feel like I should be doing like a, a Sigmund Freud kind of accent here. Or, it's um, okay; you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was Zayford Brooks's analyst called? Oh no. I can't remember now, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, um, Gag Halfrant. Gag Halfrant, yeah. So, Ziff was just this guy, you know? <laughs> anyway, um, the impact of the Portal Wars. So, as, as everybody will know, I expect, the Portal Wars began 120 years ahead of where we find ourselves. And the First and Second Horizons were battling over the right to claim, uh, effectively, the, you know, the power and resources of the Third Horizon for themselves. And these wars raged for 20 years before, in a last-ditch attempt to wrestle victory from what was looking like the jaws of defeat, the citizens of the Third Horizon destroyed the portals to the other horizons, both preventing the imminent invasion of a huge fleet that would have uh, lost them the war completely, and by doing so, ending the war in a flash. But it also cut the Third Horizon off into what they thought at the time was blessed isolation 
forever. Now that blessed isolation came at a price. It meant terrible economic recession for the first-come societies of the Third Horizon at that time, which was, again remember, about 50 years before the arrival of the Zenith. The two decades of war had already brought enough hardship, but now supply of goods and the access to trade markets that the other first two horizons had offered and that were once taken for granted, they were suddenly gone. The standard of living, the quality of life of the average citizen plunged. Industries and trades in the third horizon collapsed overnight and poverty became endemic. Yeah, um, of course, and it wasn't just the third horizon getting separate from everybody else. It was every every system, every planet within the horizon became more insular and kind of ceased to trade. Is that right? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, not only not only had they suffered the war and, you know, uh, systems have been badly destroyed, they fell into what was called the long night that fell upon them. So the first come leaders in you know obvious places like Mira, Zalos, Kua were completely at a loss about what to do about uh, about this new position they found themselves. And so, naturally enough, they fell back on the only thing that they really understood, and that was their faith in the icons. Religious authority was ruthlessly enforced. Law and order was maintained through pogroms and witch hunts. And in fear, these societies contracted upon themselves, closing their borders, trade dried up, uh, and the people just hunkered down to weather, weather the long night that the portal walls had, had brought to their door. And so how long was that long night? Well, that lasted for about 50 years. So these isolated and inward looking and, you know, what had become very suspicious cultures, you know, they survived in a fashion, clinging to their theology. But in time, the long night became bearable as generations of people were born into a world knowing nothing else. And then almost overnight, it was over with the Ark ship Zenith arriving in Dabaran travelling across the horizon, eventually settling, as we all know, in Kua and setting up the Coriolis station. But these Zenithians and the new factions that they brought brought fresh blood to the Third Horizon. They'd been through their own version of the Long Night, travelling through interstellar space to get to the Third Horizon in the first place. But now they could see you know, the light of dawn, uh, they could see all the opportunities before them, and the Zenith's arrival, obviously, changed everything. The Coriolis station quickly became the hub for the whole horizon, the Zenithians, who had long been imprisoned in their ship, were suddenly free, free to explore, free to exploit the new lands that were before them. These new factions were excited and eager and filled with an entrepreneurial spirit and the urge to explore. And they were determined and adventurous, and they set about seeking political and commercial opportunities everywhere they could, and they just took the horizon by storm. How did the first come react to that? Well, the first come, naturally, were completely shell-shocked. I mean, this ship arrived totally out of the blue. You can imagine that they were thinking these are potentially enemies, you know, first or second horizon people who, frankly, they they destroyed the, the portals to escape. But they you know, kept reliance upon their deep-rooted theological foundations. And mustn't forget that these societies were, and still are, inherently conservative and have a strong desire to preserve the status quo. And, and this has served them well during the long night when all they needed was, was to survive. But now, but now this reliance made them suspicious and cautious, which is perhaps the worst thing in the face of the Zenithian whirlwind that was coming through through the horizon. So the first-come societies were very slow to react. Before they knew it, the Zenithians, uh, driven by the consortium, had their tendrils throughout the third horizon and started to get trade flowing. 
the first come had effectively handed the initiative to these newcomers, and I think have been pretty much scrabbling to catch up ever since. So, then we come to what you describe here as the portal crisis. Yes, the consortium, having having grabbed their position within the Third Horizon in the first two decades after their arrival, set about establishing themselves as the key commercial power across the 36 systems. And their drive and their cultural strength and their commercial imperialism, driven through uh, monopolising trade, through aggressive expansion into new markets, and where necessary colonisation, gave them a very powerful preeminence. And whilst this hasn't gone unopposed, it has been greatly advanced through a number of developments, one of which was the portal crisis and the free trade treaty that came about as a result of it. So barely 20 years after Zenith had arrived, the consortium was focusing their efforts on establishing links over the big routes. So they're the ones that we all know. It's the Dabaran Circle, the, the Miran Chain, Algol yep. Route, the Sadal Route. They're the ones yep. that are in the book. Yep. Yeah, they're the ones. They're the ones that are in the book, but obviously these new space lanes, because the portals hadn't been used for years and there'd been so little traffic, they were plagued by dangers, plagued by difficulties, not only from local authorities who were keen to limit the use of the portals, but also pirates and the natural inherent dangers of of the dark between the stars. So after much fruitless debate in the council about how to protect these emerging trade routes, the legion finally lost patience and unilaterally announced that they would guard them for the benefit of everybody. It all seemed on the face of it all very altruistic, but in reality the Legion had simply taken advantage of the political indecision in the council and the military vacuum that only their fleets at that moment could fill. So in one fell swoop the Legion placed themselves in the position to protect the consortium's interests across the whole Third Horizon. And this was what sparked the portal crisis, as these next three days became known. So most first-come leaders, who were brought up on terrible stories of the portal wars and were weighed down with sort of cultural war weariness, were terrified that the Legion's move would lead to conflict and that conflict would end up leading to war. A few, though, the Zelosians being a good example, were ready to resist the newcomers by force of arms if necessary. So as the Legion fleets were leaving port to take up their new duties, the Council on Coriolis rushed to find a solution. And on the third night, they signed the Free Trade Treaty, which was the solution. And this was, in effect, a desperate last-minute attempt to prevent clashes between the Legion and local faction authorities, who took issue with the Legion's self-appointed task. The treaty, in effect, declared the independent status of every portal in the Third Horizon, and gave the right to every citizen to use the portals as they saw fit. So without explicitly saying so, the treaty ratified the Legion's play, and the consortium took another huge step towards commercial supremacy across the horizon. Right, and is this... um, I'm I'm thinking the Foundation had something to play here, because the Foundation kind of run all the portal stations now and, and do the maths that people pay for. So is that another another bit of the consortium taking power away from the first come. Did the first come like that situation? No, as as you can imagine, I don't think the first come liked it at all. But I think, I mean, some were were probably alive to the benefits that might accrue to them by taking advantage of the trade deals that the consortium was offering. 
at that point, the only faction that completely balked against it was the Order of the Pariah. And so they blockaded the Zalos portals and resisted any travel through them that wasn't authorised by the Zalosian authorities. There was a tense and uneasy standoff with the Legion. Shots were fired, uh, although it didn't break out into anything more than skirmishes. And eventually, and with great reluctance, Zalos fell into line with the treaty and reopened their portals. Although every now and then they like to use some political pretext or other to close them again. I think mm-hmm. mostly just to, just to prove that they can and ensure that they're not totally uh, impotent to to the to the legion's uh, sort of demands but also i think many observers thought that this was a smokescreen so zalos not only needs the trade that the mirren chain can offer didn't really want to provoke a war with the legion but also uh, naturally enough comes under a hell of a lot of pressure from the church of the icons in mira whose trade suffers when zalos link in the mirren chain is broken so every time Zalos close their portals, the Mirans suffer. Could this Zalosian action possibly force an unlikely alliance between the Legion and the Church of the Icons? Possibly. It hasn't done. Oh, that religious alliance could, or the religious, shall we say, authority behind the uh, Legion could could swing their long rivalry with the Zalosian fleet into into outright war and maybe the destruction of Zalos. So, but this brings us to the Third Horizon Navigation Accord. Yes. Tell me more about that. So, the the portal crisis was about 40 years ago. And once the, the consortium and the Legion had effectively won that crisis, trade progressed in a pretty reasonable order for, for a number of years. And, and as time passed, the first-come factions sort of learned and changed and started to claim a greater share of the commercial spoils that were on offer. And, and the consortium couldn't help but see this, uh, see this shift in, in, in the balance of power. And they resolved to reassert their early dominance. So five years ago, the council passed what's, what's called the Third Horizon Navigation Accord, which were a series of pro-consortium regulations that at the time left most observers staggered at the consortium's audacity in proposing them and their skill in actually pulling them off. And these regulations encourage trading mechanisms that concentrate manufacturing in consortium-approved systems and facilities and isolates the producers of raw materials by limiting their markets and how they can access them. The Accord is a thinly-veiled consortium bully-boy tactic and there are there four key elements to it. Firstly, only vessels licensed by the consortium were allowed to transport certain goods as stipulated by the consortium, i.e., the main ones that tend to work on the key, yeah, the uh, big bulk freight, yeah. exactly, and on the, the, the work on the big routes, on the big four routes. Any trader operating without a license would obviously suffer from customs tariffs or non-licensed penalty fees at one end of the scale, you know, all the way up to arrest and possibly confiscation of the cargo at the other end of the scale. The second regulation was that the consortium can offer contracts to certain producers of raw materials guaranteeing them a market for their produce at a set price. Thirdly, the Legion was authorised to enforce these regulations. And fourth, you mentioned the Anticam Altarkis, uh, or Letter of Mark, as it's known. Mm. So the Accord also recognised that the Legion doesn't have the ships to regulate all the trade that comes under the, the, the Navigation Accord. So they allowed the Consortium to authorise what, what are in effect privateers to help the Legion. These privateers are awarded 
a letter of mark known as Antichem Altarchis, and they are then le- legally authorised to enforce the accord as well as the legion. The upshot of all of this was that with one sweep of the pen, the consortium hardened their control of the high-value bulk hauler trade routes and get to pick and choose who it operates with and on what terms. Those who sign on the consortium's dotted line will get guarantees and protections, but these come at a price, and a price that always favours the consortium. Those who don't sign up have to take their chances with finding a market, coping with the customs duties and... You know, what is the entirely legal harassment they might get either from the Legion or some privateer who, in fact, is really no better than a pirate. So where are the Free League in this discussion? Well, as you can imagine, the Consortium haven't got away with this all without any resistance whatsoever. And the Free League is a key element in... in uh, resisting is possibly the wrong word, but competing with the Consortium. So, I mean, despite the consortium's apparent success over the last 50 years and their, in effect, monopoly over the major bulk trade routes, this enormous expansion of commercial activities across the horizon has left more and larger gaps left behind for others to fill. So, of course, the horizon's swarming with small independent outfits, you know, the the so-called free traders, and no amount of regulation or enforcement is going to stop even a fraction of that trade. But these are the little fish, and the Free League is a not-so-little fish. Or, or, or maybe we should say the Free League is actually a shoal of millions of little fish, which can then carry the weight way beyond any individual within it. So the Free League is a union of traders and commercial workers, but it doesn't just represent traders and uh, you know captains and pilots. They also represent dock workers and cargo hands in a huge swathe of locations across the horizon. And this is really where their power lies. So not even the consortium can operate smoothly without these men and women who are going to help them unload and load their ships. And as a result, the consortium needs to keep the peace with the Free League. Now, this might well be an uneasy and uncomfortable one for both of them, but it's one that the Free League can exploit to the full for its its membership. So this leverage... Uh, you know, might mean that every now and then the navigation accord regulations might be relaxed for free league unionists. Um, maybe a, you know, a penalty fee missed here or a blind eye turn there helps the free traders of the league to compete with the consortium, but filling the gaps left in the wake of the huge operations of the bulk haulers and the gaps that are left naturally enough in the navigation accord itself. But they're also well-placed to take on trade that the bulk haulers don't bother with. So you're talking about opportunities on more distant and more remote systems where the commercial benefits of, for the consortium you know, are going to be pretty weak tea, actually, you know, on the scale of the consortium. But for an enterprising free trader, free trader, that might just be the jackpot that changes their fortunes forever. And you've got a faction here that I don't think I've read about in any of the books called the Zenithian Trade Alliance. Yeah, I'm trying to remember whether I did read... I did get the name from the book, so whether I made this one up entirely, I can't remember. Um, I've made up so much stuff, and I've read so much stuff, I've got <laughs> no idea anymore. Oh, I don't know. I don't know who I am or what my name is. But yes, the Zenithian Trade Alliance. So similar in approach to the Free League, uh, this alliance sprung from traders who were in effect discarded by the consortium or didn't want to buy into the draconian terms of the navigation accords. And for whatever reason, either didn't want to join or couldn't join the Free League. 
And this is less a union, it's more a loose affiliation of like-minded men and women. Uh, you know, the Zenithian Trade Alliance is less inclined to worry about being above board and squeaky clean. Uh, their reputation uh, as ruthlessly cynical and single-minded, just in the way that the consortium are in trade matters. They also have a reputation for being ready to bend and break the law. And they're not against hiring their own, for want of a better phrase, anti-privateer privateers uh, to go and do a bit of protection. So as such, the Free League, at least publicly, doesn't really want anything to do with them. I'm just checking out. I'm, um, you didn't make up the Zenithian Trade Alliance. I can see at least two two references to them, uh, or to people who are associated with them in the main rulebook. So they are a thing that you didn't make up. Oh, cool. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just if you want to, if you want that bit of reassurance. But uh, something else <laughs> that's missing from this uh, so far is you haven't mentioned the Nomad Federation, who I thought might have been players in this game yeah i uh, i they, they do get a mention but i'll explain in a moment why i i haven't spent a lot of time talking about them so they are obviously quite a powerful um faction they've got a lot of ships even if they are a very disjointed group of people yeah, who are there's quite a lot of fighting amongst themselves one clumped, clumped together yeah yeah but we, I mentioned earlier about what, what I called the doppelganger caravans. And the doppelganger caravans was a reaction to the Navigation Accord. Now, the idea for this came from, or was originally mooted by the Nomad Federation themselves, when they said, well, you know, if we have a big enough convoy, a big enough caravan, you know, the Legion aren't, you know, we, we take the power away from the Legion. They're not going to, they're not going to, you know, to, to attack them. We can... We can we can get around the navigation accord simply by by being too big and too difficult to, to to handle. But they didn't do anything about it. And the first actual doppelganger caravan, so named because they are in effect replicating exactly what the consortium bulk hauler convoys are and do. The first one of those was was organised and set up by a trader baron, a guy called Sima Akale who comes from Mira, comes from Trigon and Mira. And he organised the very first one of these, from bulk haulers to small traders, with a few agile battleships included as well. And yeah, he worked on the same principle that the Nomad Federation had talked about. The caravan would be so big, so well prepared, so well armed, that the, the Legion would have to choose between letting them through entirely unmolested on all the routes that the bulk haulers for the consortium use. So these are going to be running on the Mirren Chain and uh, the Dabaran Circle, you know, on these, what were, consortium monopolies. But Akalai judged that you know, not only would the caravan be able to protect itself, you know, the, uh, the Legion wouldn't want to attack them. And the caravan would be made up of so many different factions from so many systems, both First Come and Zenithian, that to fire upon the caravan would be just like starting a war with, you know, a third of the horizon all in one go. So Akalai calculated that the Legion wouldn't do that, and he was right. So and since then, a dozen more enterprising people from across the horizon have organised similar ventures. And thus far, the consortium has kind of had to grin and bear the humiliation just watching as the navigation accord is flouted with impunity. I mean, the situation can't persist and eventually mm. something will have to give. But I didn't go into the Nomad Federation in any great detail because I had to, I guess I had to draw the line somewhere. Right. <laughs> Right, Dave. So, Professor Dave, I should say. <laughs> that, that's a potted history. 
what does that mean for where we are now in the moment of play as far as what's being traded from where? Yeah, okay. Well, you know, the big trading networks across the horizon link together really like one huge circulatory system with obviously Coriolis at its heart. As we've seen, it's the consortium that really drives and controls these big big trade routes. And at the level that the consortium operates, there are a lot of restricted goods and products that are shifted across space in huge freighters and in enormous volumes. And the profits to be made and being made by those with a stake in this trade are you know, naturally staggering. But this trade is largely limited to the core of the Third Horizon, you know, by which I mean the big six systems. So that, you know, that's Kua, Zalos, Mira, Dabaran, Algol and Sadal. Also, shouldn't forget key staging post systems. So, for example, IWAS is a really good example of uh, a staging post that's developing. Doesn't produce anything. It doesn't produce anything at all. In my universe, mm-hmm. IWAS, for those people who have listened to, to these podcasts before, is a system that the Spectral Corsair guys went through. They stopped in a planet called Trini, which was the first planet in the system. And that is effectively IWAS's attempt to make a key staging post for traders all over the horizon. Uh, not, not least those who are working the Miran chain and the Sadal route. Because those are two, obviously, two of the big routes, and they lie on, uh, IWAS lies on both those routes. But also what's called the Mira Dabaran Gold Road, which is the trade from Mira down to Dabaran, mm-hmm. which, you know, this can beat all the others if you're a clever and wily trader. So this loot, this, this loot, this route lets you get loot, I guess, as well. But, um, you know, you can buy stuff up in Mira, you can sell off some of that in a, for a profit in Zalos on your way. You then buy up all the stuff the locals need in Kua because you need to go through these these systems before you then pick up a full cargo on Coriolis to take down to Dabaran. And then you do exactly the same on the way back. So, so this IWAS um, system, Trini, is being a bit like Singapore in our modern world? Uh, I guess so. I don't know much about Singapore, so I wouldn't like to accuse them of not producing very much. But yeah, very much. Or Dubai, like a trade hub. Yeah, that all these big trading routes tend to go or do. See, these three big routes go through Iwas. Right. So Iwas is like Singapore. Believe me, it is like Singapore. Um, they do produce stuff of their own, but mostly they're being a free port for uh, stuff coming out of Asia back and going yeah. going in. Are there any other places like that? I mean, you mentioned Dubai on this world. Have we got any other systems that are in a similar position? Maybe not quite to the level of Iwas, where where they you know they are making themselves that real center for 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 traders to go to if they if they need to look for for some good leads but a notable system that is possibly on the road to that would be Altai right. in the quadrant of the pillar which is in a similar position not only are they on uh, the the Algol route of course they are on the 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 long way round on the Miran chain if uh, Zalos choose to close their portals yeah. then Altai is an important step on the way, going the long way round uh, to get to Mira. But they haven't yet really taken the opportunities to to develop themselves in the way that Iwas has done with Trini. And the stuff that's being traded through these routes and, you know, I imagine through these big bulk haulers and stuff is uh, high technology, Mm -hmm. uh, machinery and industrial goods, commodities, lumber and ore and uh, chemicals noble gases that sort of stuff 
Yeah, these these are the things that the key systems either export or need to import, I think, yeah. Right. Um, but, but, I mean, many other systems, though, particularly ones that are well off the beaten track, you know, and would never have seen the sight of a bulk freighter coming out of their portals. Systems like Menkar, Eriku, Ianu, I mean, they have their own local economies that allow the local system to get by. And some of them must be ripe, really, for smaller free traders. You know, they're offering something that's worth the time, the cost and the risk of flying all the way to these to these systems. Okay, so you mean their local economy, you know, there's a bit of trade going on in terms of foodstuffs and, and commodities again between them. But do you think they've got specialist goods? Like if I said to you, Anaspora, what's Anaspora selling to the rest of the horizon? Well, Anaspora is interesting. It's a dry, it's got a lot of dry desert planets and these tend to be infested with insects of all varieties and species. And the locals have learned to live with them um, and to exploit them as a resource. So things that you might be getting from there that you wouldn't get elsewhere in the horizon would be, um, you know, largely insect derived commodities. So, you know, honey, hardened wax, things like locust protein paste, for mm-hmm. example, uh, other foodstuffs. Venom can be can be milked from from a lot of the species there, which can be used in both primitive herbal remedies in the system itself or, you know, illegally as poison if somebody should want it. Uh, obviously, the other side of that coin is anti-venom, and obviously actual cultures and hives of of insects, which you know become you know it's pets, so yeah. becoming an increasingly high-profile demand for those around around the horizon. Or indeed, uh, like we move bees around nowadays to to help pollinate stuff. I could see precisely, yeah, pollinators as well. And what about um, Rigel? What does Rigel produce? So, well, the factories of Rigel, I think they make some pretty damn fine vehicles. So, grav bikes and scooters, hoppers. Indeed, the, the Dabran Latifs source the best grav bikes, their grav bikes, from Rigel. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Rigelians, their skill is widely acknowledged. So, the consortium haven't been allowed to get their grubby hands on this emerging trade yet. And the Rigel industrialists, I think, are doing their utmost to keep their factories working to meet the demand without having to knuckle under to the navigation accords and the consortium's, you know, bully boy pressure. So we've been talking about things, but of course, as as we know from the real world, uh, exports now aren't just things that people build. What about services? Have you thought about that at all? Well, yeah, um, I, I think there are some fabulous theatre schools on Kua where some of the finest actors and actresses are, are trained and perform. Sivas is well known for its massage and relaxation houses. Um, Zalos and Mira and the Monolith all have schools of icon ritualism and exorcism. And there are little chapter houses scattered across the Third Horizon. There are tough independent mercenary outfits coming out of planets, uh, systems like Nagar and Namada. Yeah, those Namadans, they're pretty tough. And I think they're just waiting for the coin to roll in so their brigades can roll out. <laughs> uh, and then you've got specialised services like the uh, the Mizunans from the Zib system who operate brilliantly in very cold conditions. There are presumably opportunities for, for them to work in freezing cold temperatures at a price. And obviously the underwater covert operations teams that have uh, been created and, and developed on Godar. But I think also there are lots of other new markets that can be opened up. Of the major routes, the one to Sadal is the most recently opened up. But I think there's still an abundance of planets and opportunities left to be exploited, 
even though the consortium thinks they've got their operations here well underway, and they might be turning to, to other new markets uh, themselves. First and foremost of this one is, I think, is the quadrant of the pillar. So mm-hmm. as part of the Mirren chain, and we've already mentioned Altai, um, the systems that make up the quadrant of the pillar, Altai, Sivas, Ordana and Zhao, I think they've been largely overlooked, also partly because, uh, if I remember correctly, the the Nomad Federation have a pretty strong presence in, in the, the quadrant. quadrant as well. Yeah. yeah. But these four systems have a lot going for them. So they're largely untouched with huge reserves of raw materials, loads of trade opportunities. The leaders in those systems have nurtured their political and commercial ties more strongly than the rest of the Third Horizon during the long night. And they've kept up their long-standing but light-touch political cohesion. And there are rumours that the people here have been hiding the fact of a huge portal builder legacy somewhere in these systems. But now, finally, and perhaps inevitably, the consortium has taken a strong interest in expanding into into these territories. Cool. Now, something else you've mentioned in terms of what your crew have done is salvage. Now, with all this trade going on, with all the dangers of the dark between the stars, not every ship surely gets to its final um, destination. No, I think quite a lot of ships probably don't. I mean, maybe salvage isn't you know, an obvious topic for discussion for traders rather than maybe a salvaging crew. But still, you've got to sell any salvage that you might acquire. And the books don't offer any rules for salvaging wrecks and leaves that up to each GM. Now, I wanted to offer a rule set for players to to salvage ships. And I've put something up recently mm-hmm. on RPG Gods, which... Oh, I've seen it on your blog. That's why it's come up in my conversation, obviously. Seems to have gone down pretty well. But I'm delighted to say, and what that offers is a D66 random table for what you might find, and a system that reflects the act of searching a wreck, as well as a different PC's individual skill in searching and salvaging, and a system that takes into account the the impact of any previous salvaging that that wreck might have gone through. Oh, right. So somebody else might have cleaned it out before you, you mean? Yeah. That doesn't mean you might not find something worthwhile on board still. Yeah. But your chances are going to be worse. And the, the rules I put together try and reflect that. And I think uh, they, they, they seem to. But I think that's... Um... Well, that's not quite everything, is it? So you've recorded a second bit. Uh, and in fact, we, we touched on this already, the dangers of the dark between the stars. Let's listen then to your second recorded element of this episode, which is about the various threats to trade in the Third Horizon. Threats to trade. Pirates, corsairs and privateers. There's always lots of scope for some piracy in the Third Horizon, although the consortium's bulk haulers and the doppelganger caravans are usually well enough armed and armoured to deter attention from all but the biggest and best organised pirate outfits. The more lonely trade routes in the lesser systems are often plagued by these vermin, and the long way around the Mirren chain forced upon traders when the Order of the Pariah chooses to close the Zalos portals, it's particularly bad, thanks to the Corsair infestations in Altai and Odicon. And the pirates in the Rigalarm of the Dabaran Circle are enjoying a resurge in activity. And since the Navigation Accord, there has been a surge in Privateer, or Anticam Altarkis activity, most notably in the space lanes of the big hauler routes. There is an irony, not lost on traders across the horizon, in the fact that privateers who expand their operations 
outside the main trade routes have found themselves falling victim to the very pirates and corsairs that prey on the traders upon whom they hope to prey. But not too many Free League or Zenithian Trade Alliance tears are shed on their behalf. Factional strife, unrest and conflict. It's always been the way that when the mighty clash, the little people suffer. Every time Zalos shut their portals, small traders say a prayer to the icons and hope for the best as they speed through the quadrant of the pillar and Odicon. And the unrest in the Taran system doubles the distance, and the number of risky portal jumps from Kua to Dabaran. Not only that, but the pirate operations in these systems, reluctant to challenge the battle-ready military fleets that inevitably gather, are also facing thinner and thinner pickings, as war dries up the trade and haulers go elsewhere. The pirates are displaced to nearby systems, and suddenly there are pirate problems where once there had been none. Beyond that, antagonists in these conflicts tend to let their ethical standards slip in the face of warfare, and the local population and local economies suffer. Requisitioning and appropriation of cargo and ships is all too common for the greater good of the war effort. Corruption and organised crime Protection rackets, corrupt customs officials, exorbitant levies and tariffs are a constant threat to the livelihoods of small free trader outfits. The bigger operations tend to have criminal backing, or the financial wherewithal or weight of arms to face down these problems. But the sole trader doesn't have these advantages. No wonder smuggling has become endemic across the third horizon, as corruption encourages other criminal activities. But for many, these rackets are seen as another form of tax, to be paid with a shrug of resignation and no opposition. In the end, the costs are passed on to their customers anyway, so all this does is make trade more expensive for those who are least able to pay. Finally, the dark between the stars. We mustn't forget the fact that flying in deep space is, in itself, dangerous, even without pirates, unrest and corruption to worry about. From having to make an ever-increasing number of portal jumps to get to the same destination, to flying under the radar to escape notice with all the risks that this isolation brings, free traders are always the ones to suffer the most from trade disruptions. But free traders are hardy folk. Most know no other way of life, and are happy to take on everything the Third Horizon can throw at them, so long as they enjoy the freedom to run their lives as they see fit, and are able to earn enough burr to keep flying. Some say that's not much to aspire to, but most captains would say that it's enough. So Dave, well, that is a magnum opus. <laughs> I, I think you've done really well there on that bit of homework. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Well, obviously you've enjoyed it because, uh, uh, you know, you've gone above and beyond. You know what, though? <laughs> I was thinking about giving you an A plus on, on, on the paper in my red pen. But I'm not know, sure I was I was asking for you to judge it in those terms. You're never asking but, me to judge, okay. but I'm always judging. <laughs> I am always judging. <laughs> and in fact, true, I yeah, think okay. I'm going to give you an A minus because I don't mm, think there was enough mm. on the Nomad Federation. Okay, not enough on the Nomad Federation. Yeah, right. you seem to be, when okay. I mention them, you know, in our conversation, you are you are. Grasping at straws, thinking, what can I remember about the Nomad Federation? Oh, they might have something to do with the uh, with the caravans. Um, I think that that would lose you a few marks if this was a, a, a proper essay. I think sometimes you have to uh, be careful what you wish for, because I think 
as a result of that, you can tell me about the Nomad Federation next time, Matthew. That is your job for next time. And if you don't get an A-plus star distinction, ooh, I'm fucking brilliant, then uh, I'm going to be very disappointed indeed. Okay. So, there you go. Hoist by your own petard, Jones. Right. Okay, then. That's our thing. So, um... Next episode, then, uh, listeners, uh, we will be having a special on the Nomad Federation. We will have at least an element on the Nomad Federation. I'm, I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure that we're going to have quite as much content as Dave has managed on the subject of trade this time. But we will look in detail at that faction, little known faction, shall we say, that is the Nomad Federation. Um, what else? We, we You've already mentioned that there'll be a Spectral Corsair update coming up. Yep, I can uh, do that next time. And um, and probably there'll be some other stuff that we think of between... There will be. Uh, ...here and there. Now and, and then. That will be in about <laughs> three or four weeks. And in between, there'll be the first episode of our Tales from the Loop actual play. Excellent. In the meantime, though, give yourself a hearty pat on the back, Dave. That really is a good bit of work. A plus or A minus. That, that has been really ent- in- entertaining listening to you. Well, I hope I hope everyone's enjoyed it, and I hope they haven't uh, got sick to death of uh, of the sound of my voice. Yes, I think I have actually. <laughs> well, you've let me um, off doing but... a pre-recorded bit this time, so um, so I'm quite lucky on that regard. But uh, I'll make up for it next time, not by doing two pre-recorded. I mean, people will be tired of my voice if we let if I just do the next episode. So we'll be back <laughs> to one recorded bit each next week or next time. We will. For this time, though, I think we've gone on long enough. So it's goodbye from David, and he can go and rest his voice. And it's goodbye from me. And you're not going to do... I thought you'd be doing the... And may the icons bless your adventures. Isn't it your turn? It probably is. Go on, you do it. So uh, I think David needs to go off and have a, a nice cup of sage tea to rest his voice. And I'm, I'm going to say goodbye in the way that Potboy would... Silently, you mean? With a hard stare. <laughs> yeah. That was it. I was doing it. Didn't anyone notice? I'm picking up that hard stare <laughs> through the power of the microphone. And so goodbye from David. Uh, it's goodbye from me. And may the icons bless your next trade. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric.